our panel this evening, and we are honored to host Jenna Gibson, a PhD candidate in international relations at the Department of Political Science at the University of Chicago. Hope you're enjoying this warmer weather. <laughs> Her research includes public and cultural diplomacy, soft power, South Korean politics and social issues, and U.S.-Korea relations. She was a regular contributor to the Korea column for The Diplomat for three years and director of communications at the Korea Economic Institute of America, partner of ours. Jenna lived in Korea as a Fulbright English teaching assistant. She holds a Master of Science in Foreign Service from Georgetown University and a Bachelor of Journalism from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Dr. Sukyung Kim is a professor of theater and performance studies and the associate dean of faculty and students at UCLA's School of Theater, Film, and Television. She studies the historical roots of today's popular culture. She authored Elusive Utopia, Theater, Film, and Everyday Performance in North Korea, and DMZ Crossing, Performing Emotional Citizenship Along the Korean Border and edited The Cambridge Companion to K-Pop. Dr. Kim serves as a member of the Hong Kong Research Council and co-edits the Columbia University Press's book series, Critical Voices from East Asia. Her commentary on Korean cultural politics has been featured on major media outlets including Billboard, CNN, NPR, W, Wall Street Journal, LA Times, and NBC. Our moderator for this evening is Dr. Carl Ho, Professor of Instruction and Director of Graduate, Graduate Studies of Political Science in the School of Economic, Political, and Policy Sciences at the University of Texas at Dallas. His research and teaching covers elections, public policy, and political economy with a regional focus on East Asia and data science methods. He is the co-principal investigator of the Hong Kong Election Study Project. His recent works were published in the Taiwan Voter and Taiwan's Political Realignment and Diplomatic Challenges. He is co-editor of the 2021 book, Taiwan, Environmental, Political, and Social. We have quite the talented group with us uh, here tonight, and we are going to listen to them now. So please join me in welcoming them to the stage. Thank you, President. Yeah, President. Yeah, thank you. Okay, I would just take the privilege to start at Hanaseo. I want to thank you, President Braceford, and also Council John. And um, you stole my part of the joke, and I'm Carho with a K. <laughs> I should have said that. <laughs> yeah, before I came, uh, I went to um, the barber shop, and, um, and the barber, uh, Dia, and told me uh, that, and uh, you look like Korean. And, uh, and then she gave me this Korean cut. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how much it is resembling the, the genuine, authentic Korean haircut, and uh, I'm trying that. And uh, um, I'm really humble uh, to be given this opportunity to moderate tonight's uh, uh, event and also conversation. I wish I can facilitate dialogue and um, raise some good questions. And also I want to um, 
uh, trade ideas with uh, the audience from Florida and also a guest from uh, California and Chicago. Great schools. And um, I think I would just um, get started with some introduction of my background, my teaching, and my research. And I've, uh, almost over a decade ago, I published an article comparing Korean and uh, Taiwan electorate, electorates. And my uh, article is titled, What If We Don't Party? <laughs> comparing to the Korean voters and the Taiwan voters. Among them, may, may, maybe a lot of them, and uh, still not particularly subscribe to a, a, a strong party membership. So this is a, a really impressive thing for, um, for a, the democracy. And in America, we can see that how strong nowadays and uh, we are uh, uh, subscribing to party and either you are red, I'm, I'm blue. But these two countries, particularly Korea, is doing more than just party, than just political parties. And, uh, and um, now I think it should stop uh, from posting uh, 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 about my research, but I'm, I'm really uh, interested into uh, Korean research, political research. And particularly tonight, this event, event is very timely because we are uh, literally uh, seeing two fronts of war. And uh, the, the two wars is praying this uh, world, not just as, as countries in Europe, countries in, in um, um, the Middle East, uh, North Africa. But we, one thing to remind you, South Korea is actually, officially, still at war. And um, this country, however, maintains peace for almost a century now. How could South Korea still prevail and becomes the sixth most powerful nations in the world? So this is something really need, we need to think about how this country can teach us and or how much we can learn from this small country with only 50 million in population. But maintaining peace in the area, facing the giants on the west and on the north. You can see North Korea in the west. Then you can see China and in the east, Japan. How South Korea can maintain such a peaceful period? And of course, it's not easy. Yeah. And now I think it's time to ask the question and let our speakers to give us uh, uh, innovative ideas and how this could be achieved through soft power, through key diplomacy. Um, my first question I want to particularly uh, uh, bring to Professor Kim, Associate Dean Kim, and um, her research is really extensive and also spanning uh, multiple areas and multiple disciplines. And one thing I want you to really briefly summarize how, you, how your research can bridge multiple disciplines and use Korea's, Koreans and North Koreans as examples. So teach us how to understand 
from this con apparently conflictual, but also very importantly, the cultural underpinnings that is pointing could be the, the real direction of solutions of peace in future. Thank you. Um, first of all, I would like to um, thank you all for being here, especially the co-sponsors of the event and all the audience members. I'm very touched to see very young audience member here. Um, you guys are just really inspiring, so good, good for you. Um, so, um, to answer the questions uh, of how Korea could be studied, understood oh, okay. through multidisciplinary formations in academia is um, an interesting question. I try to address it all the time in thinking of um, explaining what I do. Um, and this, I think, has a lot to do with what Professor Ho has been laying out in terms of Korea's very unique, precarious geopolitical mm -hmm. place in this world. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think those two questions are separated. So mm -hmm. let me get to the answer first and explain. <laughs> um, so why is Korea best understood through multiple disciplines and Another side of that is why does Korea have so much to say in today's world and why are we listening to it and moved by it? I think Korea as a nation can be compared to a person and this is my analogy of explaining things, so bear mm -hmm, with me. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of a person who has been victimized, wronged so many times in their lifetime but someone who refuses to stay a victim, someone who refuses to stay silent. And that's how I, I can summarize the history of Korea. And therefore, if you imagine a person like that with a life like that, that person has so much to say to you. And I think Min Jin Lee, the author of Pachinko, uh, summarized this so well in the opening sentence of her novel. History has wronged us, but no matter. And I think today's uh, cultural boom that we see uh, coming out of Korea is because the stories have so much of compressed histories of violence, reconciliation, and maybe a glimpse of hope, most importantly. And I think to really get to the bottom of this you have to understand the emotions as well as geopolitical history. And I think this is why um, some type of multifocal lens to think of this very complex place called Korea is only a prerequisite. It's only a starting point. I don't know how else to do it, um, to be honest. Um, so in a way, um, yeah, I'm gonna stop there, and perhaps uh, some people <laughs> might have questions later. And um, just uh, as was introduced many times, I'm a media scholar, I'm a cultural historian, and I don't have a thorough background like Jenna <laughs> who, or uh, Dr. Ho, who does uh, political science in, in its own full force. So I will stop here, and perhaps you can ask more questions later. Yeah. I love to jump in, actually. This is. That could be more follow-up question. I think it's a really, really good metaphor. A, a nation compared to a person victimized and and pressurized and um, and being bullied, but this person chose to do it the other way. And a, a person could could have chosen to be giving up and uh, being reserved, say, staying in a, a, a resource 
poor country, and then do nothing, maybe just to survive. But actually, then this person is doing otherwise. And uh, on the stage, we have a person who uh, um, is hard to uh, compare, hard to parallel, par find a parallel person who studies uh, K-pop culture more than, than Jenna. <laughs> so these are, I have a series of questions on Jenna, and actually, I, I like uh, Dr. Kim to jump into because uh, uh, using a metaphor of a Persian nation, not giving up, pushing forward to not just uh, to be doing well, but excel. Mm -hmm. you, have a, you have a small population of 50 million, and um, Taiwan is 23 million, it's a smaller, and I'm originally from Hong Kong, I'm uh, from a seven million, and we always talk about the four, four tigers, but no one will believe that South Korea, the, the tail of the four tigers, and now is the, really a far, far ahead leader. And now, and uh, let me go back to the, 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 uh, the main topic about K-pop, or, or Korean pop, uh, pop culture, which is really to mirror or reflect on what Dr. Kim would talk about. Now, Jenna, you, uh, you did so much research, and what do you think about the Koreans bringing the pop, its own pop culture to the top of the world? I think it's not exaggeration, and then uh, uh, K-pop is uh, among the top of the world. And uh, recently, uh, um, uh, Netflix just invested 2.5 billion, not a million, billions into making Korean co uh, uh, drama series. And so, what prompts you to study this and uh, and uh, tell us a little more about this? How this this small country can can emerge to be the top in a uh, in entertainment, and of course there are other industries, particularly the culture part, and mm -hmm. influencing the whole generation, I mean multiple generations come to. Um, I want to echo everybody else and say thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for bringing me here um, to talk about this really interesting and very timely issue. I know a lot of people are interested um, in various ways as fans, as people who find it fascinating, um, who, who, people who are interested in Korea in various facets, um, which I think is part of the point of soft, call, soft power, <laughs> right, is bringing someone in from various different perspectives, but getting them interested in a deeper way. Um, it's, it's really fascinating. I get this question a lot, you know, why, why Korea, why K-pop? You know, what was the secret formula that mm -hmm. created this, mm -hmm. you know, phenomenon? And there's a couple different ways I can answer it. There's some um, structural reasons why um, the media industry was poised to be so powerful. There's ways in which the Korean economy, not just in the cultural realm, but in general, is very export oriented and is very focused on not just staying within the bounds of that you know, 50 million people market. Um, I can talk about domestic competition within the media industry and how so much competition between these big media companies creates innovation, both in terms of art, technology, um, all of those kind of things. You know, there are reasons, and there are certainly reasons why, um, why now, right? Especially when you talk about the United States and the Western world, we're very late to the game, right? We've mm -hmm. finally caught on mm -hmm. to this phenomenon that has been going 
uh, around, viral around the world for decades at this point. But I also do like to really emphasize too, you have all these reasons, you have all these strategies, you can talk about you know, the, the marketing and all this, but also you do have to recognize that there's just a lot of talent and creativity and art, artistry that goes into um, any one music video or performance uh, or, or drama. So I, I, I like to look at it from both of those lenses is, of course, there's reasons why K-pop and K-dramas were poised to take the opportunities that they've been given and the luck um, in terms of you know, this investment and things like that. They were poised at that moment, but also, it's really good, you guys, right? <laughs> it wouldn't work if you, if you didn't have something that was resonating with people on a more artistic and creative level as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with Jenna. Um, I'd like to add two more things, um, given the forum that this is World Affairs Council. I think Korea's unique place as mid-power country in geopolitical realm also helps because Um, It doesn't have a history of colonial expansion, imperialism. So when it comes to global stage, it doesn't come with all these negative past historical associations, in a way. At the same time, its economy is advanced enough to invest heavily in cultural industry. Mm -hmm. So its unique kind of hybrid position really does help, in my view. Mm -hmm. And if you think about when K-pop, for example, really became massive in the US, you got to see that it merges uh, almost, uh, yeah, almost neatly with the social shifts that we have seen through Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, uh, and all other social shifts. This is when BTS starts to become truly global icons. And the positive influence that uh, groups like BTS and many other K-pop uh, groups have on uh, many young generation really has to do with the national image of Korea as not having this <laughs> enormously painful uh, you know, history of inflicting violence on other countries as well. So this kind of uh, image of positivity, uh, positive influence, I think all merge with the broader social shifts that we have seen in this country. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, as uh, a political scientist, I- I'd like to bring in some scientific, scientific methods in, in, in finding, uh, explaining the, the, the phenomenon like uh, South Korea. One method we use is called comparative method. And we say we compare other East Asians, just focus on East Asians. And you don't see a, 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 a country which is small but still positive, still good in many th- things. And Taiwan is really good at semiconductors, and it's top in the world. But South Korea can do some semiconductors too. And uh, Singapore is really good at financial services, but you have a very strong in, uh, um, in financial sector too, and you manage well. And not to mention the other industries like uh, automobile and um, uh, big, the big data now, and uh, telecommunications, and now the latest uh, leader in the world is a, a military industry. And um, such a small country can excel in multiple areas. So now, 
let's go back again to the, the, the entertainment industry. It's also really good in multiple things. K-pop and uh, Korean series and uh, TV series, Korean movies, and now uh, also Korean comics. And if you, in case you don't know, then uh, Korean comics is also becoming uh, looming large in uh, in in uh, um, in in U.S. So you, Jenna, you study this intensively about this. You you you, you um, put four stages of this K-pop uh, developments. How it not just become ubiquity in East Asia, but also in um, in, in U.S. How do you uh, 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 explain the success of this in the face of Japan, mm. in the face of uh, maybe uh, U.S. U.S. has its own very famous entertainment industry too. Mm. So how Korea again uh, rises to the current stage? And can you explain, will there be a fifth, sixth stage? Mm. Or uh, what those stages will be? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so um, I'll, I'll answer the question about kind of how we got here, and especially compared to some other countries. Mm. You know, you have, I mean, Japan is, is a very apt comparison because uh, when I was in high school, uh, I'm dating myself, sorry. When I was in high school, <laughs> um, anime, J-pop were m much more popular. Um, then K-pop, it was still kind of rising at the time in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, but that really flipped, and I think it was um, largely to do with uh, the internet and mostly YouTube at the time. Um, the K-pop industry was very focused on access, providing everything and making everything as accessible to as broad of an audience as possible. And you know they were a little bit less worried about the protectionism. You know, if you put your music video on YouTube, someone could watch it for free. You're not necessarily selling an album, but can you get that person to be a fan? Can you get them to click more? Can mm -hmm. you get them to be interested in going to a concert later on? It was more of a long-term investment in that sense. Um, in contrast, um, I'll give you a, a sl short story about um, my recent experience trying to buy a Japanese album for my favorite K-pop artist. Mm -hmm. And I had to, and this was within the last few months, I had to hire someone to buy it to their Japanese address because you can't buy it without a Japanese address. And then they had to send it to me in the United States. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, for the latest K-pop album, I can go to Target. <laughs> Literally, I can go to Target. So it's just, it's just a completely different mindset. And I'm not saying that this is bad or good. It's just a completely different mindset of making things as accessible as possible, you know, even if you might lose a few dollars here and there to you know, pri uh, piracy or something like that, you're creating a fan base and a community mm -hmm. that is spending so much time and energy, you know, getting into these things um, versus, you know, the kind of pr more protectionist uh, stance that the J-pop industry and the Japanese music industry has taken. And that's partially because they have a much stronger domestic music market and they don't need to go abroad as much. Um, now, on your second question of, you know, are we seeing kind of a new wave or a new um, version yeah, of uh, K-pop kind of mainstreaming in the United States? I would say yes, but not necessarily in the way I expected. I think COVID had a lot to do with that. Mm -hmm. um, so the, I wrote an article um, 
in 2019, so it was right before um, the COVID pandemic, and I said that right now, at that time, we were in this mainstreaming phase. You saw groups like BTS going on, Ellen, Colbert, I mean, these are fully mainstream television shows. I got texts from, you know, like my grandma saying, oh, there's Korean boys on the TV. Do you know who they are? <laughs> you know, like people who would have no idea um, were able to see, to see uh, these artists and potentially be interested in finding out more. Mm -hmm. Now I think we still have that, but it's, it's interesting that it's, it's moved a lot more online as we've gotten a little bit less of focus on those more mainstream or, or general audience platforms in general, and especially during COVID. I think um, it's normalized, it's in the background. There are, you'll find these artists going on places like BuzzFeed or other YouTube channels in a much more average and normal way. Um, but I think it, it's less about those big moments of, oh, so-and-so is attending, this group is attending the VMAs. I don't think we care about that as much anymore. Fans don't beyond just, you know, okay, that's great, I'll watch it. Um, and that, that could be, I think, a really good thing. It's become very normalized uh, mm -hmm. in the United States as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah I, I just like to uh, kind of back up on what um, Jenna said about making Korean culture accessible. It's true, it's true. I think, can't imagine without the new media consumptive model around YouTube and um, you know, all these platforms. Um, and a flip side of that accessibility is participatory culture, in my view. The reason uh, at least K-pop has become so huge and mainstream is because it allows people to participate in it. Uh, we've seen Kayat, <laughs> hard act to follow. I was really enjoying it. So this kind of uh, social dance culture that makes people participate in it, practice it, has become a really important as aspect of making it more mainstream. And I'd like to kind of push that a bit further in a critical way. Um, like K-pop market has become so big, its audience truly global, and yet, are we seeing the reciprocal kind of exchange of cultural influences when it comes to the expressions that we see mm -hmm. in K-pop? I mean, that's, I think, kind of going on to the future, what lies on the horizon, what needs to be done, and um, again, to fall back on the comparison to a person, I mean, you might find a very attractive, interesting person, but if that person is all about telling my story and never hearing back what you have to say, it, it no longer becomes an interesting dialogue. So I think as an industry, uh, K-pop has to be really aware of a much more complex um, mm -hmm. kind of exchange and mm -hmm. flow of influences rather than trying to push on its previous model. And I think we're seeing that already with uh, so many multicultural, multiracial K-pop idol groups now trying to make their way into the industry. And mm -hmm. I personally think it's a great thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, let's jump directly into one of the subtopics about soft power. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, we are seeing this really transcending into not just uh, um, success, uh, a lot of income or GDP, but more importantly, the, what generally called soft power. Now, I think I will not go with the de uh, definition of soft power by uh, Joseph Nye, but actually there's more dimensions of, uh, of that. And how much you think the cultural uh, ubiquity of South Korea would transcend the soft power to make the world change, 
or influence other countries, particularly your neighbors and also U.S. too, maybe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We'll quickly address this, maybe yeah. one minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll try to be quick. It's, it's a really hard topic. It's yeah. really interesting and fascinating. Um, I, I want to go back a little bit, and it's hard as someone who studies international relations not to think of soft power mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, as the you know, opposite of hard power, of military strength, economic strength, these like coercive and potentially violent mm -hmm. versions of power in the world. And that's where the idea of soft power originally came from in the 90s was we have this focus on violent power, is there another way, right? Mm -hmm. That was deliberately the purpose of creating this concept. And sometimes I struggle a little bit because the way that it came from this, you know, part of international relations is, is there a way we can influence other countries and get them to do what we want through something other than guns or, or sanctions mm -hmm. or money, things like that. Mm -hmm. But that still is, you know, a little bit of, you know, influencing, putting power on other people. It's not fully cooperative. It's not fully uh, neutral, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I struggle sometimes when it comes to things like K-pop, dramas, all these things, because I don't know how much you, number one, I'm not sure how much you want it to be like a coercive power yeah. in that same way. And then number two, I think it, it forces us to think about it in terms of, you know, what is the goal? What is the foreign policy goal? What is the political goal of using this culture as a soft power tool? Mm -hmm. um, rather than thinking, it, thinking about it in a little bit of a more long-term sense, is there a way we can invest in something that may not come to fruition until you see people who are fans grow up and study Korea in college and then maybe continue on in these more non-tangible ways. I, I think it, it's hard to balance those two, mm -hmm. you know, this desire to use this moment and to use this soft power potential of Korean culture, mm -hmm. but the fact that it, it doesn't really work that way, right? You can't force someone to do something political just because they're a fan of pop culture. I think there's a lot of tension there, and I haven't figured it out yet either. So I'm very curious. <laughs> well, Jenna was very diplomatic. I'm going to be more blunt. Okay, please, please, please. please. <laughs> okay, I think diplomacy and culture are very different things. Mm. Um, you might find the right attribute because you're this specialist, but um, one U.S. diplomat said that diplomacy is doing the nastiest things in the nicest way. <laughs> <laughs> and culture is... Very different from that. It's, it is about exchange of ideas. Of course, it's an industry. It's profit-driven business. But at the, at the bottom of it, people have to feel and see what you see and feel. It's a very different things. And I think when culture gets co-op to mask the nastiest things in the nicest way, I think there is a limit to it. And um, if if anything the government can do to help the cultural industry is to leave it alone, perhaps, and let it thrive on its own. Because the, the moment you start to put a rain on it, it's going to become something else than what it should be. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, they're tied in a sense that I attribute K-culture's success to Korea's democracy. Mm -hmm. Without it, it could not have had so many stories, mm -hmm. so many dramas, so many songs, emotions em emerging out of it. So I think that's to the extent where government can help mm -hmm. and let it thrive. 
and eventually it will naturally fall back. But what we really need here is subtle diplomacy, not an obvious reigning on this cultural mm -hmm. power. Can I follow up on that briefly? Briefly. Yeah, we'll, very briefly. We'll to the floor, I, yeah, I think it's sure. really fascinating um, sure. because this is one of the big myths about Hallyu and the K-pop and everything is that the, the Korean government like created BTS out of a lab or something. I don't know what people think. <laughs> um, some, but you see this kind of myth that the Korean government created Hallyu, created you know, this wave of interest in, in K-culture, which is just, I think, factually incorrect. But regardless of that, I don't think it would be as popular as it was today, to your point, if there was such a heavy hand from the, the top down in this way. And I think that's partially why it, there has been a lot of success, because there has been, you know, financial support in the way that most countries do for their cultural yeah. industries. Um, but it has been kind of leading from, you know, letting people in the industry do what's best mm -hmm. um, while f providing that support. Mm -hmm. So I, I completely agree. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, I actually have uh, at least a lot of questions, and, but now I think it's, it's, a, it's a, about time to open up to more questions or more ideas from the floor. And uh, may I and, uh, um, and invite and anyone who would like to, uh, Professor Lewton, uh, 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 Pelton and uh, Lou Pelton, yeah. And very interesting. So at the outset, you had talked about how these countries, if I date myself, if you go to Canto Pop, J-Pop, and now K-Pop, to what extent, agreeing that's a very organic process, I think you've all said that, to what extent has overseas affluence and influence helped? So if you look at overseas Cantonese, mm -hmm. K-Pop, J-Pop, obviously very outward, global, economic, and political outreach. To what extent has this impacted um, the popularity or the spread of K-pop? So the question is about outside influence on, mm -hmm. on the popularity of K-pop. Um, did I hear you right that the question is about the outside yeah. influence? The kind of the overseas. So um, obviously, Korea has done an outstanding job of having global communities, people who have overseas Koreans. Mm. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Thank you. I'm yeah. sorry, I misunderstood you, but now I get it. Yeah. So um, I think it is huge. I mean, recently, a uh, local LA NPR station had a whole documentary series about how Korean-American community and mm -hmm. uh, underground hip-hop musicians played a crucial role mm -hmm. in the first generation of uh, K-pop artists. Um, so there, the, the Pacific, Trans-Pacific exchange was already enabled uh, through the lifting of... Uh, you know, uh, travel ban. I mean, South Korean civilians couldn't travel freely until late 80s. So this kind of uh, flow of cultural influence coming through Southern California was, it, its influence was formative. Mm -hmm. um, the knowledge of hip hop, uh, black music, we cannot think of K-pop history without it. Uh -huh. Also, I'd like to point out that um, in every major global city, we find Chinatowns, right? I mean, there's like huge overseas Chinese communities. And I personally saw how those overseas Chinese communities also became spots where Korean pop culture became introduced gradually to uh, outside markets. Um, so those two things I'd like to point out. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, this might take a sec but um, I went to the Middle Eastern talk last year and they talked about how Westernization was 
of political power the U.S. had and how it impacted people coming to U.S. schools and things as such. And I was wondering if you would, if you think that this will happen with like maybe a Koreanization and people moving to Korea maybe, and if you think that um, like countries, for example, China will follow suit once they see this all happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I, I would say that's definitely already happening. Um, you see a, a huge influence or influx of students from all over the world, mm -hmm. especially Southeast Asia. Um, you know, trying to come to Korea to study at Korean universities, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you have people just tour coming for tourism, coming for concerts. I mean, the people who travel, you know, just truly only for. Um, their fandom activities. It's actually very common at this point. Um, you also, I just saw an article the other day that um, the TOPIC exam, which is the test of proficiency in Korean, mm -hmm. is going to be offered um, twice as often next year because there's too much demand uh, in overseas locations. So they're actually greatly expanding to fill this demand for Korean language, for studying in Korea, um, and, and this interest. And you see this in the United States too. Um, the Korea Foundation, for example, is sponsoring um, quite a few, quite a big expansion um, in academics, in talks like this. Um, there's, there's a huge expansion uh, that's, that's still going on and, and we'll, we'll see that going forward, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at UCLA, uh, the number one foreign language class in terms of student demand and class size is Korean. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We got time for one more question. Hi, um, this was sort of touched on a little bit, but not quite. Um, with this influx of K-pop and K-drama in the United States, people think they know Korea, but they don't. And the MLA showed that the number of people studying language um, has declined, but in Korean it's gone up, right? So programs in Italian and German and French, their numbers are going down, Korean numbers have gone up, which is very significant. But I just read an article last week that showed Korean studies programs are declining. Hmm. And Korean history classes are declining. Korean politics classes are, de are declining. So while we have this interest in the culture, we're not studying the history and we're not studying the politics and we don't really know Korea. We're not learning about Korea. We're only looking at the culture and think, oh, I know Korea because I listen to BTS, which is not true at all. <laughs> and, you know, Professor Ho started talking about how the Korean War hasn't ended. And when I talk to people who love K-pop and K-drama and I talk about the Korean War, they don't know what I'm talking about. They don't understand why the comfort women are an issue. They don't understand why the current administration's policies with Japan and Korea are upsetting so many people and why there are so many Koreans who are against what's happening. And it's because you know we, we focus on the culture and we love the culture, but we need to understand the history. And this is actually somewhere where I think the Korean government mm -hmm. could be more involved, is in promoting, hey, don't just look at our culture, but learn about us as a people. We're not, we're not K-pop and we're not K-drama. We are human beings who have a history and this is who we are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I definitely agree. And I think um, that's one of the ways where coming back to the idea of soft power, this idea that you know Korea has K-pop and it has BTS, it has Squid Game and all that, which legitimately very great. Um, 
and therefore it has soft power. That's where I think we're talking about complicating that a little bit. And that's where I think exchange programs, um, studying abroad, not just studying the language, but you know, actually having the opportunity to go abroad and experience um, talking with actual Korean you know, colleagues and students and, and mm -hmm. spending time there and realizing the complexity um, that does exist in any country. Um, I think that taking that interest in the culture and spinning it into something you know, step by step a little bit more can maybe get at some of the, the struggles that, that you correctly point out. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for your comment. I feel a huge responsibility <laughs> as a bit more senior scholar working on this. And it's actually very difficult to teach popular culture at university level. Because how do you turn it into serious academic inquiry? And that's when your question comes in. How do we understand K-pop as it is today? There are historical roots. And that is the history of an Asian people. And it's you know, a very complex relations with others, right? Living in this constant struggle. So um, yeah, I, but I'm also hopeful because um, yeah, I mean, since the day uh, somebody landed on number one chart, people have been having this like enormous crisis. When is this gonna end? When is this going to end? But I am more hopeful in a sense that something that we are exposed to when we're young stays with us for the lifetime. Music that you listen to in your teenage years would likely to stay much longer than something that you discovered at my age, 50. I grew up listening to British band, Duran Duran, Culture Club. I still follow them. <laughs> They're still soft spot. And the fact that uh, K-pop tends to be mostly enjoyed by younger, if not all, uh, is a hopeful sign. So I, I feel a huge responsibility in that regard. Thank you. Yeah. All right, I think I can let Carl, Jenna, Sukyung, thank you so much for that conversation. It is fascinating, truly. I really enjoyed that. We have a small token of our appreciation, but thank you for that conversation. Thank you to the Korea Foundation for your support and partnership of this event, and also the consul, uh, the consulate. Thank you very much for being here, and thanks to all of you for being here this evening. We'll see you at a, a future program soon, we hope. And thank you again. Thank you.